This is episode number 243, Empowering Female Athletes of All Ages with Sarah Gross of Live Feisty. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The first thing that came to my head was around how we create hero culture, I think especially here in North America. You know, so it's really good to have heroes to look up to. But I think we sometimes emphasize talent over hard work or people that we see at the Olympic Games or elite athletes as having some kind of special talent that we don't have. And then we underestimate exactly how much work has gone behind that elite athlete. I'm stoked to be hanging out with you today. And I know there are many, many podcasts out there. And I just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening and for being part of the community. If you're enjoying the show, as always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and share the show with your friends on social media. Myself and the guests always love seeing the tags that you guys put out there. And it's fun to see your work out in the world. And did you know that every Monday I send out a newsletter that has a researched article that I put out that has everything to do with mindset, motivation, and habits. And it also has the podcast of the week, the book I'm reading, and a question for you to contemplate. And here is a testimonial from somebody who is a podcast listener and now a newsletter subscriber. Kristen Wolf from Alaska said, though I've listened to your podcast for a while, I am a recent subscriber to your newsletter and I have been missing out. In addition to the thoughtful messages, I like the format of the question of the week, and I especially like the added bonus of knowing what you are currently reading. So if you want to get on that list, if you want to join Kristen and a bunch of others, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter to get exclusive content sent directly from me every Monday. So let's talk about today's guest, Sarah Gross of Live Feisty. She is all about empowering female athletes and creating media around female heroes. And that is the first step to bringing more women into the sport. Sarah is a two-time Ironman champion. She's the founder of her company, Live Feisty, and she has her PhD in women's history. Her advocacy for women's sports drove her to create Live Feisty. Live Feisty's mission is to create media information and support for female athletes. It's a media company that has a network of podcasts, articles, events, and more to help women move toward their potential. You might have heard of the Iron Women podcast or the Hit Pause Not Play podcast. Those are also part of the Live Feisty network. We covered a lot of interesting topics in this podcast. Personally, I enjoyed Sarah's perspective because of her education background, a PhD in women's history, her elite athlete background, and also her background as an entrepreneur. So she brings a unique perspective to the table, and I think you'll enjoy it too. We talked about things like pushing past glass ceilings and dealing with imposter syndrome, addressing hero culture, systemic barriers for women, and why she created Live Feisty, lessons in building community, menopause and performance as a budding field of research, and parenting a daughter with inherent biases, and just talking about what it's like to be an athlete, a business person, and also a mom. One more announcement before we get into it is I have revamped the Patreon page and we'll be spending a lot more time creating value for you there as well. And you can get there at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. There are a few different tiers, but you'll get access to live streams, 
workbooks, a quarterly mastermind, ebooks, discounts, and the best of the month newsletter. And I'm just trying to bring an extra step in your journey, an extra brick in the wall to helping you be better every day and to help give back whenever you give back to the show as well. That's at patreon.com slash newsletter. And to those of you who have been supporting my work on PayPal and Patreon already, mega thank you to you. It really helps. It helps pay my audio producer, Roma. Podcasting is definitely a labor of love. And it's also something that I love to do. And I'm just trying to cover the cost. So thank you to those of you who are helping out. All right. So let's get into this week's episode with Sarah Gross. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi, Sonia. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to get to sit down. We were just chatting before this, and I thought I should just turn the record button on because we're already having fun. But just to see all the things that you've done in your life so far and all the things that you've built, what do you attribute that can-do attitude to? Oh, wow. (laughs) Starting with the big questions. I think it's funny because it's sort of just a the way that my life has gone, I was thinking the other day how I I bootstrapped my first business when I was in university and I was kind of always self-employed or running businesses. So I think I just kind of started doing that and then didn't really know what else to do. Like, I don't think I would know how to work for someone else, um, if you know what I mean. So like I did, when I did my PhD, of course, that's self-directed work. The, like the, the various businesses I've run, self-directed, being a pro athlete, as you know, is like very, very self-directed. You have to be self-motivated and, and um, intrinsically motivated. So I think it was just the habits that I formed over several years. And what came first, school or becoming an athlete or was that simultaneous? I think it was, yeah, it was mostly simultaneous. You know, being an athlete was something like I was always active and an active kid, but I didn't see myself as elite. I think a lot of us struggle with various forms of imposter syndrome. And, and definitely for me, I was like, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I didn't think I could be elite at anything. And then when I was doing my, I did actually did my PhD in Scotland and I moved from Canada where, you know, we had a very thriving international scene for triathlon. And it was like, those women were performing in a way that was way beyond what I thought I could do. And then I went to Scotland and it's a bit, a bit of a smaller country. Triathlon was less popular there. And I went to races and I started to, I'd perform fairly well, or I'd win my age group or, you know, eventually I won a race. So those two things kind of came together and being in a small pond definitely helped me see that I could perhaps do more in triathlon. So, and, and honestly, working on a degree is a great way to also train really hard because you, can, you have control of your time and you don't have to be clocking in and clocking out on someone else's timeline. So yeah, those things came together. And then by the time I finished my studies, I was kind of really ready for a change. And so it was an easy choice. I'm smiling because I got my master's in engineering and the decision to get my master's wasn't because I loved engineering. It was because I really wanted to be a professional athlete and I wanted to have the flexibility to train. So instead of getting like a quote real job, I thought I'll just go to grad school and I'll have time to train and I'll just get this (laughs) master's degree on the side. Oh, I love that. Did that work out for you? It did. It was, it was really difficult. I had to really learn time management because I had to like work multiple jobs and train Oh yeah, it's a long story, but I, I won't. I'll save that for another day. I wanted to. Okay, I know it worked out for you, bigger picture, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to go back to something you said. You said that you didn't think that you could be elite, and many of us deal with 
different forms of imposter syndrome. And a lot of us do like build these glass ceilings over our own head and we build our own limitations Mm -hmm. and we have to do something like you said, going to Scotland and actually being in a smaller pond actually really helped you believe that you could do more. But why do you think people Mm -hmm. in general, this is another big question, but why do you think people put those limits on themselves? Like, oh, I could never be elite. Cause I'm sure people listening feel that way. Yeah. Oh gosh. I think there's several reasons. Like unpacking that is, is quite a big question. But the first thing that came to my head was around how we create hero culture. I think especially here in North America, you know, so it's really good to have heroes to look up to and people's, you know, no, you know, I mean, sports heroes and the way the media treats mm-hmm. people as if they're very, very special. But I think we sometimes emphasize talent over hard work or we see, you know, people that we see at the Olympic games or elite athletes as having some kind of special talent that we don't have. And then we underestimate exactly how much work has gone behind that elite athlete. I know. And and you can probably relate like having been in an elite environment that when someone makes a breakthrough as an athlete, it's never a surprise to the people around that person right? So they seem to burst onto the scene all of a sudden or whatever. And we love that story, right? Like someone who just comes in and they take over, but really behind the scenes, that person's probably been working really, really hard. And several people have been supporting them for many years, usually before that kind of breakthrough happens. So I think that's one thing, the hero culture. I also think as women, for us, it's a little harder. Sometimes we don't see examples of people who have been who are in our immediate environment, who have the successes that we want, right? So that's another challenge. I think there's a, there's a lot of things like we're taught. I don't know this this changes generationally, but I know I remember my parents feeling like they didn't want to be overly complimentary of me as a child because they felt I would get an ego or a big head or something like that. So some of those things come from those kind of influences too. I remember my mom saying that directly, like. We don't want, you know, I don't want you to be conceited, you know, like she was, she was, she was essentially, I'm not blaming her. She's essentially trying to make me into a good person as mothers do. And in the meantime is actually kind of pulling me back a little bit on, you know, unconsciously. So I think there are several levels (laughs) um, to how we end up feeling like we can't do things. The other thing, and I'll, I'll just add here quickly is that I think that part of the solution to people being able to aim bigger is like when you have someone near you who's been successful in the way you want to be successful, like if you actually can see them and you know them and you can talk to them and you know they're a real human, often that can create success in other people around, you know, like in a training squad, you know, everyone's training together and then someone becomes successful and you're like, oh, wait, well, if she can do it, then I can do it because I'm doing the same training and I'm keeping up. So I think that that could be part of the solution too. Yeah, like you said, seeing people as a human. And I think that means like seeing people's vulnerabilities and seeing that the path to success is not a linear path. And and you said hero culture, it's like overnight success stories. And you don't hear the stories of how hard people are working and all the failures and all the self-doubt and all those things along the way. But I think things are changing mm-hmm. actually. Like just the way that we consume media in general, podcasts, social media, you know, writing, anyone can write their own story now online. And that's sort of breaking down those barriers to help people see themselves and other people's stories and then to help them believe that they can do it too. Yeah, I agree. And you're part of that. So <laughs> yeah, so kudos to you. Oh. So I want to talk about your PhD because 
you know, I'm like, okay, PhD. And I'm thinking it's going to be something like, oh, maybe like physiology or, you know, because you're, you've won, yeah. you know, Ironman races and, and you're this like amazing athlete. And then I saw women's history and I thought that is absolutely fascinating. And I have to ask about that. <laughs> Yeah. So it's funny because for so long, my two worlds did not match each other at all. Right. So I said, and I actually studied ancient history. So I was literally like reading ancient Greek and Hebrew texts, like nothing to do with sport at all. And then in 2014, 2015, we started to advocate for equal slots for the female pros at the Ironman World Championships because we don't have equal slots. And just, I found that the questions we were asking and the ways that we were advocating actually related a lot to the kinds of things I was doing with my historical studies. So in history, like the kind of things you would ask is, well, what were the women doing? <laughs> you know, sometimes we're, uh, it, historically we're focused on kings and wars and a lot of the things that the men were doing. And we don't necessarily, I mean, I'm way oversimplifying obviously, but we don't necessarily know what interesting and valuable things women were doing, contributing to their society. So it's the same thing in a way. It's like, what are okay, well, we need more women in sport. Like, how do we get there? How do we increase women's media? How do we, how do we get women on the pages of history? So then those things started to come together for me in this way that just kind of happened naturally. Yeah, that's super interesting, um, the way that you've connected those dots. And I'm actually studying for my Canadian citizenship test this week. So I'm, I'm brushing up on Canadian history. And now that you mention it, it's like, yeah, they, they mentioned <laughs> women about, you know, when women got the vote. But everything is about like the men that, you know, came over here and like the French and the British and the wars. And there's no mention of what women were doing. So what were women doing during that time? Because many of us, well, number one, a lot of us probably didn't pay attention in history to begin with. <laughs> and, you know, thinking about history. Yeah. Like, what were they up to? Yeah, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer specifically to that, but it doesn't surprise me too much that the way that that, like there's so much work to do in, in history in the same way that we have so much work to do in, in women's sport, if you compare it to men's sport. But from, for me, the work I did in the ancient world was more like we read, we would read sort of tombstones, read the epitaphs and see what, because sometimes there were women who were leaders or who had done interesting things. And that was sometimes written down. A lot of uh, the wealthy women could write. So they would have, they would have some kind of, we had some written texts, not many, because it's mostly it's like 99% text written by men. But sometimes we'd have a description of maybe what, of like meals women would make or how they would organize their, their family life. And then additionally, especially if you had like a standout woman who was, who was a leader in her community, you'd probably have writing about that. So I remember there was one in a Jewish community, there was a, a tombstone that said that had a woman's name and it said leader of the synagogue that was on her tombstone. And previously all the male historians, like since archeology span had found that tombstone up into when this colleague of mine had interpreted it most of the translations were, oh, well, it was a misprint. Like either there was a man with a woman's name or they spelt it wrong on the tombstone or it was like, it was wrong somehow. Like it couldn't be possible, right? Wow. And, and so this, yeah, this woman who actually really inspired me in my study said, well, wait a second, what if it's a woman? Like, what if we just went, take all of our biases and assumptions and put them aside and go, okay, like maybe there was a female head of the synagogue. And then as she started to dig in, we found like various historians found that actually there were quite a lot of female leaders. We just didn't really know about them. 
and the ways of finding them are very difficult in the ancient world because there's not that much evidence left. So I suspect like that kind of um, the history that doesn't go back 2000 years, but goes back, you know, just a couple hundred years, we, we could probably find quite a lot on what the women were doing in the time frame you asked about. And there are probably people doing that work, but it's just not become mainstream enough to be in the textbook and then be in on your test of becoming a Canadian citizen. Right. <laughs> what about the matriarchal societies? I know that, you know, the world is a big place, but I'm curious how history was written for them. Yeah, I don't know a ton about that. Because again, it's like you when you study something you like for a PhD, you're trying to make a contribution to history or to human knowledge. That's what it is. You're making a contribution to human <laughs> knowledge. And that's like, what? Like That's like a really big ask. Um, and so you tend to like drill down on one specific thing, right? So I think if I'd stayed in history, I'd have a much better idea about how some of these societies functions. But I do know that like, there's a, a definite relationship that's kind of obvious between who you, we talked about hero culture earlier, but who you look up to in your society and the amounts of freedoms that, that individuals have personally. So in societies, say like in Greek societies that I studied quite a lot, you know, when you have multiple gods, you know, that are male and female, you have different, you see women's roles differently than like we do coming from a, a tradition with like a patriarchal God, right? Mm-hmm. And those things actually, those things actually affect how we see the world, even though sometimes in our, like our postmodern culture, we like don't necessarily want to see that those connections to religion. But I think that those things definitely weave threads through our society and, and affect how we see things. And I think this is a good tie into just talking about like the systemic barriers in place for women, right? Like that we grew up with and these biases Mm. that we grew up with. Like you mentioned, I don't know if this is included in this discussion, but your mom saying to you like, you know, be quiet and don't have an ego because that's not good. Whereas like maybe little boys, you know, weren't told that. And as a result, you know, you thought, well, maybe I can't be at the highest level because I'm not supposed to, you know, be big and go big. So like, what are some of the systemic barriers that you've been noticing, especially with this, you know, live feisty media collective that you have and all of your experience in women's history? Yeah. I mean, I love that you use the word systemic because I think that's widely misunderstood how sexism work it works and how racism works in societies, right? So it's like, we're very prone to pointing at people and going, you're sexist or you're racist. And, but really it's a system that we're all, we all sort of buy into to some extent, right? Which kind of is empowering in a way because then we can say, okay, what are the ways, like as a woman, what are the ways I've internalized some of the notions that come to me culturally, like you just mentioned, and what are, and how can I overcome that? And how can I help other people overcome that? Because that's really the only power that we have. I mean, we can also advocate for change, um, like uh, I saw that you talked to Catherine Bertine a few weeks ago, and uh, definitely those change makers are are needed, and um, and calling out people for their do you call it their participation in the system, right? So I think that's important too. But so with Live Feisty, interesting question. Yeah, it took us a little while. Like we started in triathlon. We actually have four podcasts that are in the triathlon space, and I think for a long time. The, like the industry didn't take us seriously. Uh, we used a lot of humor in our work and it was sort of just, we were like, we sort of felt like the silly girls doing this weird content. 
But as time went by, like, and as we, and as we started to sort of gather the people in the room who agreed with us and our point of view, and a lot of the women who felt like there wasn't content being made for them, those were, those became our followers. And as triathlon as a sport started to say, well, how do we get more women involved in the sport? They suddenly realized, oh, wait, like there's, they're all following this. <laughs> there's, there's, it's not just me. There's, there are other people doing this work in triathlon, of course, but they're all following over here and then started to take us seriously. So it took a little bit of, we weren't just taken seriously at the beginning. It took a little while to find the audience and, and have the industry realize, oh yeah, they're here to stay and, and this is happening. Yeah. And like, how did you come up with Live Feisty? I guess I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit. And and what's it about? Oh, huh. Yeah, so Feisty. So when I first retired from a professional sport, I was an intern with a media company. And I had worked with a lot of journalists that I'd been, you know, as an athlete, like, you know, I'd been, I'd been interviewed a lot. And I really saw the power of media and the way that you tell a story being really important. And I enjoy writing and thought I might want to be a journalist. Um, and so I was working with this media company and I realized that I thought I saw a path to start to like do a podcast and monetize it and start to create communities around the things we were doing. Like, I didn't know if it was going to work, but I thought I would really like to try. So we just started with one podcast. It's called Iron Women. It's still going. I've actually listened to um, that podcast and- um, quite a bit. Oh, cool. (laughs) Alyssa and Haley do a great job. Like we started, it started the first couple episodes. If you go back and listen, actually nobody go back and listen because (laughs) because that was me very beginner podcaster. Oh, I think people should interrupt, but I think people should go back and listen because then you see like how you can improve and where the starting point is. Mm, yeah, there's definitely an arc, an arc if you want to see an arc yeah. on podcasting because it starts with just like me talking and, and doing these interviews that I have zero experience. And then, you know, I bring Alyssa in and now Alyssa and Haley do a great job of finding great interviews and, and talking to women every week in that space. But yeah, and then I did a lot of brainstorming around like names because I wanted to wanted to find the right word and the right words for my business. And um I put, I had like post-it notes all around the room, did like the typical and brought people, like brought my friends in and we're all staring at these post-it notes. And eventually, I eventually one day, I was like coming up against a brick wall because I didn't know what to call the company. And I Googled words that have been used disparagingly towards women. And and there's, I had, I got all kinds of articles and stuff. And one of the words that came out was feisty. And I loved it because I love reclaiming language. I think that's really fun and important. Um, but also feisty's kind of rides that line. Like it's been used negatively, but also it had, it has positive connotations as well. So I thought I'd love to use the word feisty and just, and see if people respond to it too. So one of the first things we did was go to a big event and start saying feisty, like, are you feisty? Do you like just asking people questions about feisty and seeing how they respond to that? And at least in like for the English speaking world, it's been actually kind of difficult to translate, but they really related to it. So yeah, that's where we started. So you started with thinking, I want to create a podcast and see if I can monetize it. And then I'm going to bring other women into the fold and have other podcasts as part of this network. Yeah. Yeah. So now we have, I I think I sort of, in my head, I was like, I'm going to start a media company without really knowing what that is. And in a way I still don't. And I think, I think media is in this weird place because what is it? Like you said near at the beginning, you know, that lots of people can create a voice for themselves online now. That's a really great thing. And we've, we're out of that phase where, where certain people control the media and the messaging, you know, so through social media, we can do all kinds of things. So 
we kind of just use that shifting period of the last five years as an advantage, right? Like we can go in and do this like rogue coverage of, of events, right? And see how many people will watch on Facebook or on Instagram Live or wherever. So yeah, we started building from there. Now we have, we're just about to launch our seventh podcast when we have wow. two events. We do a lot of work on Instagram too. We started using TikTok, which is super fun. <laughs> So we just kind of like keep creating content and call ourselves a media company. Uh, we also have some communities where you can join a membership and you can subscribe and be part of a, a community. And we have various like experts in the communities or we create for the people who want more, who want to actually talk to each other. So that's something we do as well. So it's a online that community. makes us a media company. Yeah, it's a, so it's a, commu- it's a media company and a community to elevate women across, it sounds like not just podcasts, but multiple levels of media and entertainment so that Mm -hmm. you create a hero culture where there's women being seen as heroes too, because media still has a long way to go, like classic media. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, and on, and all different women too, you know, like, because for every, you know, there's no one way to be a woman in the world. Right. So that's, I see that as really being important too. And I know that class from having studied women's history and feminist methodology, like we don't want to fall into that trap of being, of thinking that the experience of white women is the experience of everyone. So that's definitely, I definitely see and understand how we need a lot of different voices if we're going to all rise together. And what have been some lessons you've learned about building community? Because there's a lot of moving pieces here. There's a lot of people here with different backgrounds and you're at the top, you're the founder, but then you have like multiple levels of your business. So how do you, like, what are some of the lessons you've learned? I'd say, I'd say my number one lesson is to, is that not one, like one person can't do all the jobs, you know? So, and so finding the right people and leveraging their strengths is really, really important. And so I think as we've grown, I've really seen how, okay, if I find someone who really loves creating content, that's great. You need people that really love talking to people online because that's important for your for that community building piece. But you also need people who like love sales or who like the quieter people who want to do, who maybe want to do admin work or be behind the scenes. And it's really important to like respect everybody's strengths and encourage them, but also like, you know, recognize them and bring them in too. So, and we started like, we, like, I understand that when you're starting, sometimes you're starting a business and I used to find this frustration is like, but I can't afford to hire someone. Like I can't even get to my first hire, let alone, you know, multiple hires, but we, I brought people in slowly. So often we would start, I would bring on, you know, really smart interns, people who felt passionate about the project and slowly, but surely over four years, I actually have a handful of people in this category who have like slowly arced into a full-time job with, with Liv Feisty. Um, so yeah, leveraging people's strengths has been really important and also like not being this, these two things kind of go together allowing some of the people that I work with to also build the business too, and not just like being driven. Like I, I think I have good ideas. Sure. But I, but I think that lots of other people have good ideas too. And I think sometimes startups can get driven into the ground by founders that don't, that are like so driven, driven by their own ideas. Okay. Bring, bringing someone in and going, okay, but how do you think this thing could grow? Or what are your ideas around how we could change this business or move it forward? 
Um, so collaboration is the short answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, my husband runs a, like a larger financial planning business. And a big part of what he does is actually building the team. Because if you want to expand and scale, it's all about like figuring mm. out, you know, what all those things you just said. And it's much easier said than done. Like you, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job. He's doing a great job, but I've, I've seen other people not doing as an amazing of job and being able to get out of your own way. Sounds like it's a, a really big skill to have. Yeah. And I think one thing, and I'm still, that I still work on is also helping other people get out of their own way too, yeah. um, who are working for That's, that's a harder thing because you're not, you know, like we're not emotional, you know, we're not counseling services. <laughs> you're trying to, so that's like how much to nurture people and how much to sort of let them get on with things too. It's an ongoing process, figuring that out. Yeah. So you mentioned that there is like, I noticed there is like a subscription community where you kind of get behind the scenes and you get access to, to more and to experts. Mm -hmm. And so what are some common topics in that community that come up that you wish were talked about more? Oh, great question. We have several subscription programs. One is our feisty team, which is our triathlon team. And Another one is the thing that we just launched the Women's Performance Summit. So that's more broadly across various sports to help active women be thrive throughout our entire lives. And that it's, the questions are different in different communities, you know. So I think um, for triathlon or for sport, we also have a gravel community in cycling. And uh, they, you know, sometimes people want, like in those communities want practical information from other women. So they really, like when we've had, we've recently had an expert come in who did bike fit, but was like a woman talking openly about women's bits and saddles, <laughs> you know, and oftentimes, <laughs> oftentimes people can relate really strongly to that or will hear that message more from another woman. And that's a very practical thing. But then in some of our other, say in the women's performance arena, I find People like to feel heard. Like if your experience is uh, suddenly someone else is relating to your experience as a woman in sport or as a way that we've been held back. The menopause, <laughs> we launched a menopause podcast called Hit Play, Not Pause with Celine Yeager in I think October or November and suddenly realized that these women were not, there was a whole group of active women in their 50s who don't have content created for them and don't have any place to get information or be educated about how to, about how to get, I don't even want to say get through menopause because I like, I prefer to frame it positively, but how to thrive at that time in their lives. And so those women have a lot of questions like about everything, about nutrition, about physiology, but also even the mindset piece is really important too. And we address that as well, especially because like I come from this background of of history. So I really enjoy exploring the cultural pieces and the, the social aspects that I think sometimes like we don't always know that we want that to feel heard in that way. But once you find that community of people, you're like, oh yeah, this is what I'm missing. I'm missing people who understand me and what I'm going through. So I think we have that in all our various community groups. Yeah. And that comes back actually to that systemic issue of just barriers for women and like we're all mm. part of that system. And I actually did a post on Instagram as a while ago, but it was about like your period. And, you know, Stacey Sims has been on my podcast and that's actually one of the most popular podcasts that we've ever put out. But like, 
it didn't occur to me yeah. that there were questions about menopause because I'm not there yet. And I hadn't even thought about it. And it does seem like menopausal and postmenopausal women are just kind of swept under the rug and like nobody talks about that. And it was just completely like it wasn't even in my frame of awareness until that post. And I was so thankful for the women asking those questions. And I didn't know the answers to them. But the fact that now they're like because I, I follow Celine and I know about that podcast now. And I thought this is fantastic that this is out there because we just many of us just aren't even aware of it. Yeah, it's crazy when you think about it, that we're <laughs> like with that menopause piece that we're right at the beginning, right? Of understanding how to be active through that time. And I think it's because this is the first, this is the first generation now coming like in our 40s and 50s who who have actually been active our entire lives. Like I think of my mom's generation, she, there's it's few and far between the women who actually stayed in sport until late in life. But now more and more people are, are participating, more and more women especially are participating as we get older. So I think there's there's actually that like kind of ground swell of participation and and the when women there who are like, wait a minute, this isn't good enough. Like we need more information. But I think, you know, in the coming years, we're gonna see so much change for women in sport and active women generally, because we're only just starting to ask the questions, right? Like Stacey Sims, who you mentioned, she is She's a pioneer, right? Like I, I see her as kind of the first person who put up her hand and went, well, wait a second. If all the studies are done on men, like how do we know they apply to us, right? And like one woman herself, Stacy, cannot answer all the questions that need answering. And so now there's another group of academics coming behind her and this will just continue on, will continue to grow. And, and even in, you know, even as for psychology, if you think about it, like we focus a lot on, eating disorders and body image with female athletes. But like, are there other questions to ask? Do we even know what those questions are? Like who's doing that research? What, you know, so I just think we're going to see women's performances in sport, but also our ability to live more active lives be just, you know, a hundredfold better and women get stronger and faster so quickly when we start doing this work. Yeah. And I think the other category, we mentioned menopause, but the other category is like pregnancy and breastfeeding and postpartum bodies. And that's that's the world that I'm in right now. And I really mm -hmm. wanted to share my whole experience as a pregnant person and athlete, but mm -hmm. everybody has really different experiences in that. And even between pregnancies, you have different experiences and people's put like, it's just difficult to really give like someone's like, tell me what to do. It's hard to give a prescription because everybody's so different, but providing lots of different stories and different places where people can find information that maybe they can relate with and fit what's going on in their lives, I think is is really important and just starting to to start budding and blooming. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you think about it, 20 years ago, the recommendation when you were pregnant was like, was pretty close to don't exercise. <laughs> <laughs> like it was like, keep it minimal, you know, don't stress your body at all, go for walks. Like it's like, it's, it's very recently that we were telling people that. And, and there were athletes, elite, a lot of elite athletes, you know, who challenged that because they wanted to come back after pregnancy. And so, yeah, I think that again, it's like, we're at the beginning, like even when I, my daughter's 10. So even the what's changed since the things that have changed since I was pregnant with her and what, I see people doing now and being able to do and the, the new advice that they have is so positive and so much in the right direction. But yeah, there's there's definitely a long way to go. Uh, I know I felt like I was 
I felt a bit like the, it's like the wild west. Like I got most of my information about pregnancy and postpartum from like blogs or other women who I knew in real life. Like I, there was no place to go for the quality information in that area. Right. And now we're starting to see things change a lot. And there are people actually, actually experts popping up and people spending their entire lives researching these things. So I'm excited. Yeah, if people are like the cliffhanger, who who should I, you know, where's a good place to start? There's a woman named Catherine Cram, and she co-wrote a book mm-hmm. called Exercising Through Your Pregnancy. And she's been on this podcast, but her website is PPF Consulting, and it has so much information, regardless of whatever sport you want to do, on how to do it pregnant and postpartum. Yeah, cool. I'm so happy when I see people like that coming forward, you know, and like imagine a world where we have like 100 people who have done this work and we're starting to really hone in on some really great information. So when when my daughter, if my daughter decides to have kids, I'm sure she's going to have a much different experience than we had. I want to ask you about your approach to parenting, actually, because you have a daughter and we've been talking about, you know, all of these biases that we have. And how have you thought about that as a parent with your daughter? Oh man, you know, it's something that I try to do, like it's not something I've thought a lot about, but that I try to, in in everything I do, just be very self-aware and things that I say, you know, the typical thing would be making sure that I'm telling her that she's smart or encouraging her and her various talents instead of commenting on her looks, for example, that's a simple one. But the other day on International Women's Day, actually, when I picked her up from school, I asked her if they celebrated International Women's Day at school. And she said, well, no, the boys would go crazy. (laughs) And I was like, why would the boys go crazy? And she's like, well, they would say, when is International Men's Day? Right? And I said, oh, there is an International (laughs) Men's Day. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was like, there is an International Men's Day in November, you know? And, And she was like, well, she said, yeah, International Women's Day is more important. Um, and I was like, okay, like, why do you think that? And she said, because women are one of the more hated genders. And then I was like, oh, I was a little bit confused by like, I just wanted to know where she got that from. And she said, oh, mommy, all you have to do is go online to see that. Hmm. Right. So like somehow she had picked up, I think she's picked up messaging of two kinds. One, like she's probably actually seen some misogyny online. And then two, she's She's also picked up that people are talking about it, right? Like people yeah. are actively trying to work against that kind of misogyny. I think that's part of it too, or perhaps a more heartening way of looking at it. So I think for me, there's an interplay between the constant positive messaging that I try to give her and actually acknowledging that she's going to take things in from the cult- from culturally and help her decipher those things and actually talk about them with her. Another fun example <laughs> Um, is that is she you know the cardi b song mm-hmm. um wop yeah. you know what i'm talking about yep somehow she came across this song and she she realized partially what it meant right and i just actually at this is moment because she was nine at the time and i just had this moment where i'm like i either like am i going to talk about female sexuality with my nine-year-old or not <laughs> like how am i going to handle yeah. this especially in context of something so like kind of in your face is that song and then I just like, I kind of just went for it. I was like, okay, let's talk about this. Like, let's talk about female sexuality and what that means. And she had a bunch of questions about 
what the various lyrics meant and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, I would way rather that she's having this conversation first with me than like learning about it in the schoolyard. So I think those are the moments, right? Like those are the moments that I treasure in in parenting and that I think, you know, it may lead to her saying something inappropriate and some other parent going, what are they talking about at home? (laughs) But I'm willing to take that risk. Yeah, that's like, courageous parenting, being able to sit down and like some parents might avoid that conversation because they're uncomfortable with the situation. But that's such a good point. Like they could hear it at school and they probably did hear it at school because she had all these different questions about it. Yeah. And I think to answer your original question, I think that parenting is about that decision-making moment to moment and about checking and knowing what your own biases are and what you're bringing to those conversations rather than something that's preconceived about how things are going to go because they never go the way you think they're going to (laughs) go. Yeah, I I think about that a lot because I have a son and I I thought, I actually initially, I was Mm -hmm. like, it'd be really cool to have a girl because then I can like raise this like strong, powerful female, which isn't really even fair to put that sort of box on the child. Like you need to be this way. But yeah, I'm like, what does it mean to raise a quote feminist son? And my husband and I talked about this a lot because my dad or my my husband, hopefully that wasn't some weird Freudian slip, but <laughs> my husband <laughs> growing my husband growing up was like, I never looked at women as, you know, being less than. And he came from a family of four with three boys and one girl. And that just wasn't part of the narrative. And he's my husband just doesn't actually think like that. And we were talking about it. I said, well, how do we teach our son that? And he's like, well, we just live by example. And we try to be as aware Mm -hmm. of our biases as possible. And when he says things, and I'm sure he will at some point, like, you run like a girl or like things like that, like that's not going to be acceptable in our home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Parenting by example. That's kind of how I think too. And sometimes I'm like, is that just because I'm so busy with my business? <laughs> that's what I'm telling myself. Because um, I'm definitely not like the helicopter parent that's constantly like watching over everything that she's doing. But yeah, I, I mean, I hope that we're right. <laughs> that parenting by example is what works. Yeah. And along those lines, I recorded a podcast. It was just like a solo episode, but it was about managing mom guilt. And I actually interviewed some other female athletes about how they manage that. And again, going back to systemic expectations in society that, you know, women need to stay home with their kids. And that that was the practice not that long ago. And there is shaming in society. Like I got funny messages on Instagram. Like when I had a three month old, I was out training and people are like, how could you do that? And same goes for women who, you know, they they want to have their own business. They want to have a career, but they also really want and love being a mom. So, you know, for you, how do you manage all of that? I don't know. I tend to not, I have pretty thick skin. I think that's something that like I realized as I started to do more media projects that like, that that can, I can use that as an advantage. Like I'm willing to, I can take on a negative comment and go, okay, like, I see that where that person might be coming from and maybe they're framing it negatively because they feel badly about themselves somehow in this equation and just kind of move on. So I think that that's really important. You know, I also see like Rosie's dad and I are, are separated, but we definitely are pretty strong co-parents and I look at, I look at him almost like I said at the beginning, like I look at my team members, you know, and I see that a lot of his strengths are more, might be a bit more 
what we would traditionally consider maternal. Like he's very good at like, he likes to spend time with her. He definitely does not have the drive and ambition that I have. So I'm, you know, I work a lot and I carve out time for her, but it's like that time management piece is always a challenge. Whereas he likes to stay home. He likes to just hang out and watch a movie with her. He brings different strengths to the table. So like as a team, I see us that way, or I'm also willing to sometimes like outsource things that I think that she needs that neither of us really can provide her. So, so to answer your question, like, I think I handle that kind of those kind of expectations by first of all, like not letting it in, like not letting it affect how I feel about myself. And then secondly, going, okay, what are my daughter's actual needs? And how do I provide that to her in the best way that's going to help me thrive, her thrive, her dad thrive, everyone in the equation? Yeah, I think that's a really great perspective and something that people are going to take away with them because you're going to get bombarded with everything, especially if you put stuff online and even from family members Mm -hmm. and being true to yourself and knowing like, you know, best what you need and what your child needs. And it sounds like you've done just such a great job with your family unit of just like you've done in your business, like recognizing people's strengths, getting out of your own way and out helping people get out of their own way and just setting people up in these positions of where they're going to feel empowered to do the things that are best for them. Totally. And I think if I can, if I can circle back to the historical study piece here too, is that like what advantage I found from having studied history is that we see, we see things as sometimes as a constant, like women's rights. Like we see it as something that's been like constantly improving throughout history, you know, and we're at the best moment now, but that's not necessarily true. And things go more zigzaggy than that. And even the way that we understand family and the family unit has completely changed. So like the way right now that we have, like we, we live in our own homes, like we don't live in community as much as human societies have in most parts of the world through most of history. So there was definitely certain, most points in history where you would take, say, the person in your community who's the best at childminding, and that person might take care of a whole group of kids while other people were out like I'm I'm way oversimplifying here, but while other people might be out like hunting and collecting berries and building houses and like everyone's and everyone has a role to play. Like we didn't expect every woman in every family unit to be like the main caretaker and nurturer. And do everything else. That's a modern expectation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the total modern construction on what womanhood is. And like even studying history, the bit that I did with Mm -hmm. my PhD is enough to see that like that's completely created and we can think completely differently if we want to. Yeah. You you just threw like a really big question out there and there's a different answer for everybody, but like what is womanhood? And that's a difficult question to answer because everybody has like the feminine and the masculine energies And like we call things feminine and we call things masculine. So I don't even like using those words, but like just that big question of what does it mean to be a woman? I don't think Mm -hmm. there's a, a, there's an answer for that, but it's a really interesting discussion. Totally. I love that you went there. Like that is, I think it's like the central problem of feminism too, is that you can't actually define the thing that you're trying to, that you're trying to change. So, and it's the same question with historical studies. Like as soon as you try to define woman, what that is, like if I'm doing women's history or if I create a women's media company and then you try to define what woman is, you just can't because any definition you come up with is going to exclude someone, right? So it's like this constant, like 
shifting, changing thing. And what woman is, is like an individualized notion. Like if you identify as a woman, you get to decide what womanhood is for you ultimately. And I think that's maybe where I would leave that is like, it's as in that empowering way, like we get to define it for ourselves individually and also not to like try to take that away from someone else. And I think the same goes for for being a man. And there's probably a lot of pressure mm-hmm. for men now because I mean, and I'm now I'm stereotyping and generalizing and on all those things, but like it's like, what does it mean? Masculine, like you don't show emotion, you don't cry, like you provide for your family. And that's a lot of pressure for guys who maybe don't like you mentioned your husband is more of a, a nurturer and you know that or, or sorry, mm-hmm. your your partner. That would be a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. like to be under as a as a man if you don't feel like you fit that mold. Oh, totally. And like, just that's why I think, and and you brought up like the system to begin with and like systemic sexism and systemic racism, I think I brought up too, because just because there's a system, like we have a system that tends to think that things that are coded as male have more value and coded as female have less value. That doesn't mean that there aren't things about like maleness and associations with maleness that become really difficult for individual men. Like the system itself doesn't work for so many people, right? And what I think right now we're in this moment and you can see it with a lot of the questions. There are a lot of questions right now more than any other recent time period anyway around gender, right? And around what mm-hmm. it means to be a man or a woman or to not identify with either of those things. And so I think that we, like the gender dichotomy, I guess, is not working. It's not working right now for a lot of people. And so I think we're, in, we're actually in an interesting moment with that too, of like, the, the system isn't working. The gender system isn't working. So things are going to change pretty quickly. And especially with, I see like the next generation, you'll probably see it as your son grows up too. But with like my daughter, the things she consumes online, like there's a, there's a lot of people who are not associating with male and female anymore. And, and I'm not that surprised, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to look at the history books or we might be dead by the time those history books are really out. But what are they going to yeah. say about, you know, the 2000s, like 2000 to 2100 and all the things that uh, ensued then and who's going to be writing those history books. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Like it's exciting and interesting. And I think, yeah, honestly, I don't really have a, a great answer to that because I I don't know. I hope people continue to take an interest in history and that we keep writing stories in a different way. And ultimately they are stories. Like there's no way to as much as we want to have historical accuracy and truth and aim for that as much as possible, it's like an impossible goal because everyone's going to bring their own bias and their own, you know, all the, all their, everything they've learned into their study of history. So we need all of those perspectives. Yeah. And I I also think um, this is a little bit off topic, but just like people think they hate history and I could use that lens and say, gosh, history is so boring, but it depends on what you're focusing on. Like for me, I don't like, I'm really a lot more interested in the cultural part of history and seeing like how cultures have evolved and shifted. But when it comes to like wars, like it's important to know what happened in the war and why the war happened. But I hate going back and just seeing like dates and names and the battle of this. Like to me, that's not inspiring knowing like the outcome and, and, and why it happened and all that is, but just the way that history books are written just seems to make it so people don't want to learn it because it's just so dry. Totally, totally. Like if you think, yeah, like because we had to memorize, like we literally had to memorize dates and write them down on a paper. Like that is, that is really, really dull. But if you're talking about like, say 
the enlightenment and how the beginning of science changed the way that we see the world. Like, that's interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) You know, so this definitely different ways to frame things for sure. Yeah. I guess we're almost out of time here. Uh, I just, the summits that you've just had this year are over, but I just wanted to bring up the Women's Performance Summit and also the Outspoken Summit and just ask you just generally what those are and how people can be on the lookout for the next summit. Sure. So at the end of March of this year, we had the the first Feisty Women's Performance Summit. And so that was over, it was virtual over a weekend and focused on women performing on all levels. So that's from physiology, nutrition, mental health. We have some psychologists and also the social cultural piece like you and I've been talking about. We address all of those things. We had 20 experts and I believe it's only, it's it's before the summit that we're recording. So um, we're going to have all of those 20 sessions at a low cost for sale um, after the summit. So you can look for that on livefeisty.com. And we're hoping to have a pretty big in-person summit next spring in 2022 under the same topic. Like our, our whole goal is kind of to bring together experts in this space who really want to talk about at like women thriving throughout their lives um, and who are really doing the work on that. And then the Outspoken Summit is our triathlon summit. So it's a women in triathlon summit and focused around gender equity and triathlon and any all the questions and things that affect women in triathlon. And that happens in the fall in November in Tempe, Arizona. And this year for 2021, we're looking at a, a hybrid event. So we're about to launch ticket sales on the virtual event. And then as time gets closer, we're hoping to have some of the speakers in real life and some networking things, maybe 50 people, depending on what the world looks like. And in this sort of after the vaccine, most people are vaccinated and see what happens. So we're kind of just going to wait a minute, read the room on that and proceed safely. But yeah, we're hoping that 2022, we'll be able to have two meeting of the minds, one in March around women's performance and in November again with triathlon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And you mentioned the point of getting a PhD is to make a contribution in history. And I'm sure you've done that with your PhD, but you're also doing it again with just your your own feistiness and, you know, starting Live Feisty, creating this amazing space for women to thrive through all stages of their lives. And I can't wait to see how this continues to grow. Thank you, Sonia. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and share the show with your friends. So stoked you're here. So grateful for you. You are awesome. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.